Hi everyone, I'm Wendy Mies, creator of the Left Pocket Project, which brings you the history of leftists of color one swipe at a time. And this is the Left Pocket Project podcast. Before I get on to today's episode, I just wanted to remind everyone that if they're interested in learning more about the Left Pocket Project, they can check us out on social media by typing in Left POC, and that's L-E-F-T-P-O-C. We're on Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud, you name it, we're on it. Um, and you should definitely check out our Patreon page, and that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N slash left P-O-C, L-E-F-T-P-O-C, of course. And there you can find free books, uh, lots of articles, um, of course, our podcast in full. We like to keep everything free and nothing behind a paywall, precisely because we believe in the democratization of history, of knowledge, and certainly of leftism. So with that said, I just wanted to get on with the uh, on this episode, I speak with activists and journalists Jacqueline and Abdul Shahid Lukman. The Lukmans are purveyors of politics, social commentary, current events, and a little bit of entertainment. They're primarily focused on Black liberation and Pan-Africanist principles. In other words, unity among African and African-descended peoples in the United States and in the diaspora. The Lukmans are also unapologetic socialists. Believing in the need for strong working class and poor solidarity to combat racism, sexism, transphobia, and to dismantle capitalism and imperialism and militarism that are its outcomes. They believe in building a new society by addressing the issues of race and class, not one or the other, because they are used interchangeably in the system of oppression that we've been fighting for 400 plus years. They're students of history and believe a constant examination thereof is key to these endeavors. They are also Christians and find no conflict between Christianity and Black liberation and Pan-Africanism. They find no need to denigrate any spiritual belief to pursue these principles. They believe that all faiths focus on freedom. And last but not least, of course, the Lukmans are all about that revolutionary life, and they will never not be. So anyway, with that said, uh, I really enjoyed this interview. I thought it was a great discussion. Um, unfortunately, Richard couldn't join us, but he wished he could be here. Um, I'm sorry to the fans who I know love Richard, uh, but he'll be back for the next few episodes. But in the meantime, sit back, relax, and listen to this wonderful episode. I really had a great time interviewing Jacqueline and Optus, and uh, I hope you all enjoy the talk. Thank you both for being here with me. I really appreciate it. And as I mentioned in the intro, unfortunately, Richard couldn't join us, um, but he wishes he could be here because he was really excited about talking to you all. Uh, but maybe we will have you all back on again to hopefully continue our discussion about uh, Black politics, Black activism, and socialism, which you all seem to be quite involved in. Um, I wanted to ask you first just how you met, because you all seem to have a really great dynamic on your show, Lukeman Nation. Um, and I'm curious about your backgrounds and sort of like how you two came together as both activists and journalists as well. Um, it's funny when people ask us this story because it's always still so amusing to, to both of us. Um, we met at a Christian singles conference. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, neither one of us actually wanted to be there, to tell you the truth. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, he was there uh, because he 
has a CDL license and he's the only person in his church um, group that could drive the bus for the singles ministry to get there. <laughs> and yeah. I was there. And the only reason he was going to go was because somebody had already paid for their ticket. So the ticket was paid for. So he, he like had no reason not to go. Right. And the person that um, paid for the ticket and they couldn't go at the last minute. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And the only reason I was there was because my good friend was starting the singles ministry in our church, which I wasn't really all that interested in. <laughs> um, but we hadn't spent any time together for a while. We were both really busy. And, you know, she was like, this would be a great opportunity for us to just hang out. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. All right. Okay. I'll go. And was convinced that it would just be horrible the whole weekend. And there he was. Um, every day I went to the cafeteria for a meal. He was sitting at the first table right in front of the doors. And he would, his was the first face that I saw. And uh, he smiled. And he has a beautiful, beautiful smile. And I thought, crap, I'm in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's a very sweet way to have met, but it happens to also be a good point of segue because I know that you have mentioned, uh, Jacqueline, that you used to be involved in the punk scene. Is that right? Um, yes. So if you, <laughs> so that's why I was like, hmm, maybe the Christian singles thing doesn't work out. But at the same time, you often talk about on the show, um, on Luke Nation, and I believe as well on some of the stuff that you've done for The Real News, um, you all have both discussed the need for leftism to kind of be mindful of uh, people who are Christian or religious and sort of that being perhaps a potential disconnect for some leftists. Um, if you all could talk about that as well and kind of like how, I mean, how, how do we as leftists um, pay better attention to and be more attuned to these cultural differences while at the same time not losing some of the more, um, I don't know, like humanist principles of uh, leftism that don't really relate directly to religion, formal religion, I should say. I think that one of the things that, um, you know, what happens so much on the left, you know, with, with respect to religion, is that there, there's a tendency to kind of um, uh, assume that everyone who believes in uh, a higher power is somewhat, you know, uh, either um, stupid or they're um, lost, uh, you know, they don't have a grip on reality mm -hmm. or, you know, or they're not as enlightened, you know, and, um, and that's, that's just totally, you know, not true. Um, I think that one of the reasons why the right has been so successful, the so-called right, and the reason why Republicans have been so successful in the past is the fact that whether they believe it or not, they have included within their base um, a, 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 a space for people of faith. And that has been very successful for them where they don't even, um, you know, whether, like I said, whether they're sincere about it or not, and I believe that they're really not sincere about it, but they have, they have seen the strategic um, benefits of providing a space for those who um, have religious faith. I think that the left um, has done the opposite. I think what the left has done is that it hasn't provided a space. It hasn't um, allowed, it hasn't uh, allowed uh, people of faith um, to really express that there are different facets of, uh, to a religious expression. 
And so what happens is, is that, you know, not everybody is, you know, not everybody expresses their Christian faith in the form of a Jerry Falwell or the religious right or the moral majority or any other kind of right-wing expression that there are, especially from the black tradition and especially from the black expression of Christianity, there has always been um, uh, this, this way of using um, Christianity or not just Christianity, but just black religious faith as a form of um, revolutionary um, expression. So, you know, so that has always not uh, been um, accepted on the so-called left. And so I think that what happens is that a lot of, uh, a lot of people, a lot of black people who, um, who are somewhat religious or who believe in, um, uh, who, have some, who, who believe in a God, they've been either uh, put off by this um, condescension on the left towards people of faith. And, and, though, and then it has also driven some people away from who would probably identify with the politics of the left and had driven them towards, um, you know, uh, and Jackie, ja Jackie could, could attest to this about a lot of the black conservative Christians who would probably normally identify more with the left, but who has found a home with the Christian right. Yeah, that, that is like this weird dynamic where, you know, there are a lot of um, churches, a lot of black churches where, you know, they're angry about police brutality, but the way their faith has been preached to them by these pastors um, emphasizes, you know, turning the other cheek and praying for your enemy. And you know, there's a complete misinterpretation of what the scripture actually says about fighting for justice on behalf of the oppressed. That's what the scripture actually tells us to do. And there is an entire progressive expression of the Christian faith that exists in mainline denominations. But there's always been a black liberation theology uh, expression of the faith from, you know, through, that came up through Nat Turner and John Brown, you know, all the way up to Jeremiah Wright. So that's, that's the faith we subscribe to. That's our faith. And, um, right. and may I know, also add, I'm sorry, but may I also add um, Reverend Graylin Hagler, who's our pastor right. now, who follows in that same tradition. Yeah. So, you know, the, the, uh, the expression of faith in, um, excuse me, protest, the expression of faith in identifying um, the, the, uh, abuses of the empire, the um, the expression of faith that that identifies capitalism as a problem, and this is all actually ref reflected in the same scriptures that right that the right uses um, to claim basically that God is a conservative Republican. If you actually read the scripture and you see the things that Jesus said and did, and who he uh, opposed and the institutions they be, those people belong to and represented, you get a very different uh, view of uh, who Jesus and ultimately who God is for and against. And the scriptures are very clear to us that God is on behalf on the half on, on the side of the oppressed. Jesus was on the side of the oppressed. He was among the oppressed. So um, you know, yeah. Well, that's that's. But, but that takes a level of uh, effort in actually reading the scriptures, studying the history, understanding the politics 
behind why the Bible exists in the form that it does, what was included in the Bible, what wasn't included in the Bible, and, and that the Bible itself is a political tool um, that was used by the empire. So, that, so there's all of that, understanding all of that um, takes you away from that um, very passive right-wing interpretation of scripture and I think all faiths, and it turns it into truly a revolutionary kind of expression of harnessing supernatural power to challenge empire and power on behalf of oppressed people. I think that we need to understand, uh, if I may just add this one last point, I think that what we need to understand is that most all religions, um, especially the major religions um, of the Abrahamic faiths, when I talk about Christianity, Islam, and Judaism, um, and we could talk about even uh, some of the Eastern faiths, um, whether it's Buddhism, uh, Confucianism, Taoism, they've all started off as revolutionary movements. And so when we look, so I think that if, if, the, if a lot of the um, uh, people on the so-called left, uh, especially those who are responsible for organizing and those who are responsible for leadership positions, who, uh, if you want to ex ex uh, really understand the relationship between um, religion and um, radical um, revolutionary movements, then all we have to do is just look at the origins of all of these religions. They all started out um, as revolutionary movements, where you talk about Muhammad, um, uh, who was uh, uh, and Jesus, all of them were persecuted by the state. <laughs> you know, um, uh, uh, um, when you, whether you talk about Moses, um, the, the father of uh, Judaism, who, uh, was, um, who had to free his people from a mighty empire, so you're talking about, again, state power, state abuses. Um, so, you know, um, so they all started off like that. And so I think that it would really <laughs> behoove the left to really embrace the revolutionary origins of religion. And then so they could see how, um, you know, what we're fighting for and what our ideals are. We have more in common, at least with the progenitors of those faiths, than, um, than they do, uh, than, we, than we think that the, the right or you know that uh, those who are on the right has, and and then I think for those of us who are people of faith, we have to be really really careful that we don't go into movement spaces, that we don't go into organizing spaces and <laughs> try to convert people to the faith. That's not our job. It's really not our job to um, to to try to get people to be Christian. It's not our job to try to quote unquote save people. Our job is to really reflect the, the, the love of, of our faith tradition in the flesh, and that always expresses itself through standing up for oppressed people. That is our one and only job on the face of this earth. So we do that and stop worrying about people's eternal souls. I think we'll have a better job at uh, being in solidarity with people who were supposed to be uh, standing in the gap for, really. I mean, I can appreciate all of those comments, especially the connections that you made, but in particular, this first bit uh, where you were talking about some of the problems that emerge in the church in terms of the ways that the sort of liberation theology of the past has been distorted in really extreme ways. Um, I had a cousin, for example, and, and my family's from the South. I'm from the South. Everyone still lives in Tennessee and Mississippi. Um, and their churches have grown increasingly more conservative over the years. So I've had cousins, for example, 
write really absurd things on Facebook, like that Mike Brown deserved to die because he wasn't obeying the authority of the police officer and really kind of disturbing commentary like that. I would also say that, you know, right now with prosperity gospel really and re-emerging as a strong, I don't know about re-emerging, but definitely emerging as a sort of strong aspect of Christianity in the Deep South um, and also throughout Latin America as of late. It's been, I think, more and more difficult in some ways to bridge the gap between the left and religious groups. But at the same time, I think, as I said, some of the connections that you all were just making are really important for us all to remember. And especially considering the fact that, you know, we have even now um, so many Black Lives Matter activists, for example, who've been explicitly, um, you know, vocal about the connections between their politics and their religious backgrounds. Um, oddly, Andrew Sullivan just made a tweet uh, like a little while ago saying that like everyone from in BLM is like a Marxist atheist, um, which is ironic because as I said, a lot of people have been very frank about their um, religious backgrounds, including people like uh, Brie Newsom, I know like prayed when she was taking the Confederate flag down. She's been involved in Black Lives Matter. Um, and there also uh, was, Rahel Tasmafarian, I think is her last name, um, who was very vocal about being, you know, like involved in both religious um, teachings or connecting religious teachings and Black Lives Matter. So those, those are connections that I hope that more and more people can start to make um, in order to connect with larger audiences and larger um, constituencies, if you will. But I, on that note, I wanted to ask you all about uh, sort of the disconnect that we saw repeatedly during the Sanders campaign and that I think we continue to see on the left um, between, you know, arguably between white leftists and black people, um, people of color in general, but in particular black people in the United States and black southerners. Um, do you all have any thoughts and comments on perhaps methods that um, people on the left in general can take, but especially white leftists, and especially now as we're seeing sort of in the, this, this very, blatant multiracial movement that's emerging with Black Lives Matter. Um, it's, it's very, very multiracial. And we see in some cases, like in the case of Portland, more white protesters than black ones. I'm wondering what are your thoughts on, on these groups coming together? And what are some of the, you know, like post-mortem commentaries that you think people like a Sanders campaign or people involved could maybe use and consider beyond just the question of connecting with people who are religious um, going forward to make to forge stronger connections and, and ultimately earn more votes. Yeah, I think there was, I feel like we did this after um, the first uh, campaign. We did this after 2016 with the Sanders campaign. We meaning, you know, black leftists. And I was much more involved in uh, the Sanders and supporting Sanders then than I was this time around. Um, because I saw that left, that, that a lot of white progressives really did not want to listen to black progressives and leftists on how to reach out to black people to get them to vote for their candidate. Um, there was no way that Bernie Sanders should have ever lost the Deep South if uh, his campaign had actually gone into these spaces where you've got a lot of older, sick black people who have, who are on Medicare, who are on Medicaid, who, you know, are unhappy with their insufficient health insurance, who, 
um, still are struggling with student debt who have, you know, rent that they cannot pay and the rent keeps going up. And Bernie Sanders' ideas were great, but they didn't reach the people who needed to push him uh, across the line in 2016. He, he was told that, his campaign was told that by his Black staff members, several people who we personally knew um, were working on his campaign and his campaign didn't listen. One of those things that should have been done was outreach to Black churches. But this time around, we were hoping, you know, maybe, maybe he does things different. Maybe the, the white leftists will finally listen to us Black leftists and, and realize that you cannot um, ignore an entire group of Black people just because you don't like their faith expression or, you know, you feel like the Democratic Party uh, bosses in the South have their vote on a lock or the generational divide is so deep and entrenched that you might as well not even try. That I just, and then, then when, when they don't, when the campaign didn't uh, do the work that it needed to do to address those issues, to not even make inroads in, in, in those areas, then when uh, uh, the South went for Joe Biden in the last camp, in the last uh, uh, primary, at the word of Jim Clyburn, uh, because according to him, Sanders didn't ask for his endorsement. I mean, dude, you couldn't even pick up the phone and say, listen, Jim, I, I understand that you've got a long history with Biden, but your constituents need these policies. Yeah, I mean, you couldn't even, you couldn't even try. To, and they've worked on legislation together too, if I'm not mistaken, right? Like, yeah. They put stuff together on the, on the floor. Yeah. And, and I mean, it, it, and it's not, and it's not to say that I absolutely believe everything Jim Clyburn says, because I don't, but just the idea that for whatever reason, you didn't even feel it necessary to pick up the phone and ask, look, can you take a chance on doing something different this time to see if we can get something better for your people, your constituents this time? That's like, and then when the South goes to Biden on the word of Jim Clyburn, then the same white progressives who would not uh, push the Sanders campaign to do these things that black leftists told them to do, then the very same white progressives turn around and blame black voters for not voting for Sanders. And it's like, I, that, that to me sounds like an abusive relationship. And we're tired of seeing it. We're tired of seeing it. We're tired of, of experiencing it. Yeah, we're tired of, of, of having our vote taken advantage of and taken for granted by the democratic establishment. But we're tired of this kind of this kind of leftist, uh, uh, this, this left kind of, I don't even know what to call it, other than like this manipulation by left uh, white progressives where we're not going to do anything to really address the needs that Black people say that they have. We don't really care what your needs are. We're just going to shove all of these general economic policies at you and they're going to be better for you and you're just going to take it. And then when people feel like, well, that's not what I want. You didn't even bother to have a conversation with me and you don't treat me any differently from any other white people. So 
I'll just go with the white people I know. Then it's like, well, see, this is why you people don't get anything. This is why you people don't ever have nice things. And it's like, okay. I, I agree with all of the points that Jackie made. I think that what there has to be is mutual respect. There has to be respect from the white um, uh, left um, to accept black leadership. That's number one. You don't see a lot of that. Um, you don't see a lot of um, uh, a lot of these organizations, especially on the white left, remain um, remain majority 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 white um, when it comes to their leadership, when it comes to um, their committees. They, you know, there has to be a respect for the abilities of black people also. Um, this is not a thing where black people are sitting back waiting to be saved by um, well-intentioned white people. This is the thing where this has to be a partnership and that partnership has to be based upon respect. The Bernie Sanders campaign uh, did great when they went out there to, uh, I believe it was Arizona, and they were able to organize the Latina X community out there. They've done great. Um, in fact, um, um, it was, it was based, it shocked um, not only the Democratic uh, uh, establishment, uh, Democratic Party establishment, but it shocked even um, those on the right that Bernie Sanders' campaign was able to galvanize um, the, the Latinx voters out there. And they'd done that through respecting the grassroots Latinx organizations that were out there, something that they didn't do when it came to um, the African-American um, organizations and, and, and uh, um, grassroots street organizations, um, which they didn't spend a lot of, they didn't spend the type, they didn't spend hardly the amount of money uh, among black people that they did out there in uh, with the Latinx. Um, so, so what happens is that white liberals have to really be honest about their own underlying biases when it comes to dealing with black people. We have a very long history in this country of, uh, of, um, of, of a cultural war in this country, as we know, which is rooted in slavery, which is rooted in Jim Crow, which is rooted in the way that we got together in this country in the first place. And so what happens is, is the fact that as much as we, as much as uh, the white left and want to work with us and 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 have the um, the great intentions of doing this and, and sincere intentions, don't get me wrong, because one of the questions that you asked earlier was about um, how the you know about what we see about the diversity of the um, uh, of the um, the protest today. I think that it's the greatest thing that I've seen at least in my lifetime. Um, and, and I have a lot of hope in it. What, what, I, what, I, what I fear is still this white liberal paternalism when it comes to us. And, and that is something that, that I think that the white left has to deal with. Uh, Bernie Sanders, um, and, and I give you a, a great example, the whole issue around reparations. White, the white, 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 white liberals have to stop being afraid to back a black uh, economic agenda you know, because it's going to turn off some white people. They, you know, they, it has to be some courage there. Bernie Sanders should have shown some courage. Um, this whole um, uh, th thing around reparations about, well, what does it look like? And the, the, I mean, this game that's being played when we know that the wealth gap in this country uh, amongst black people and white people um, uh, uh, is widening every time. The fact that it even started off um, being this type of gap because we were, because our ancestors worked for 200 some years without pay and then we were disenfranchised from uh, um, the economic possibilities of this country for the for, for 300 more years you know so all of these things you know um, uh, played a part in the reason why you find black people mostly poor 
um, mostly unable to, um, uh, uh, to uh, have social uh, mobility in this society. Uh, a lot of that is just based upon the fact that um, we have been made broke, as somebody, a friend of mine said on Facebook, that, that Black people have, made, have been made broke by this government. And so it, it would take this government um, in order to undo uh, the damage that is done. But white liberals have to, have to not only internalize that message, but they have to stand on it and be courageous about it and not worry about it um, uh, 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 getting white people down south or those or other, or other people mad because, um, because you know, this is what it's going to take in order to have a more perfect union. So I think, let's, so, so just to sum up what I'm saying, there has to be an acceptance of black leadership. There has to be an acceptance of a black agenda, specific agenda. Um, you know, you know this, this thing of, of, of bringing, of, of you, uh, putting everybody's agenda together and say, well, we have a whole left agenda. Well, that's not going to work. Because the reason why it's not going to work, because we all have different needs. The fact that remains is that white liberals have been telling black people for the longest time, we're going to get to you, but let's, let's deal with this first. And let's get deal with that. And then so what happens is we have a Barack Obama who comes in and has two terms, and then we come out as a community worse off than we did before he became president. Because once again, we were, um, uh, we, we were being told um, not to push uh, the first black president into um, backing a, 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 a black agenda and that, you know, we don't want to rock the boat if, it, if it's seen that, um, you know, that, that, that um, Barack Obama or the Democratic Party is doing too much for black people. So, we, so, so that has to end because what's going to happen is, is that we're going to find ourselves again, um, uh, uh, again, being worse off than, um, than we were in, it's just going to get worse and worse. Right. And it also seems like this problem continues to repeat itself, right? Like, it's not like this is everyone's first rodeo. We've seen uh, these sort of disconnects before in the past um, and off. We've definitely seen a lot of sort of white leftist procrastinate, procrastination or placing on the back burner of um, Black issues or Black specific issues in this country. Um, I'm wondering, though, like, just sort of reflecting on a lot of what you both said, which I think were excellent points in terms of how to sort of reshape the left in terms of making it more a space that cares about, listens to, and prioritizes Black issues. I'm also wondering though, like, how do we get to that point where we're making people do those things? Like, I guess that's where I also, I have a big question mark, right? Like, how do you make it so that white leftists then begin to listen or diversify their movements or respect us or understand and value our contributions, see us as adequate and sufficient or even, you know, vital um, leaders in our own communities, trust our judgment, et cetera. How do we, as, as we ourselves are not white, um, how do we then make our brothers and sisters who are in these movements begin to fully, you know, implement some of the things that you all both suggested that would make the left a much stronger um, political space and one that can actually gain power in this country and, and do what's right by its people. You know, the interesting thing about that question, and I, I love that question because it reminds me of something that Malcolm X said at um, a speech he did, I think at Harvard University, um, when a white student asked him, what can I do uh, for to help uh, you know black people in the struggle, and Malcolm very curtly said nothing to her. And then later on in life, he regretted being so 
um, dismissive of her because he grew to realize that there could be, uh, you know, plenty of room for white people to uh, join in the struggle and, and struggle along with us. But he also understood that that was not something that we could make white people do. We couldn't make them see, we couldn't make them understand it. They either, they either wanted to do it or not, but we had to, what we had to do was to always organize ourselves. And we always have to do this work in our communities, whether our white progressive or white leftist uh, uh, friends uh, or, and, and, and alleged comrades, because really if they're not organizing with us, then I question their allyship and comradeship. But we have to do this organizing in our communities, whether they are involved or not. And I think that what's happening now is we're getting, we're at the point where leftists are realizing that this has been their mistake. This is why places like Portland are um, seeing the kind of protest activity that it is seeing. Uh, because they realize, I think because a lot of white people who consider themselves leftists are realizing we have made the mistake of ignoring what black people have been saying and leaving them out of not just the conversation about what uh, justice is and how it gets done, but we've wanted to lead all the time and we've not let the people who are the most impacted and oppressed by these systems and powers, we've not let them lead. So now we're the ones who are gonna have to be out here um, taking the brunt of uh, whatever it is this system has to throw at people to protect black folks while they, well, I should, I don't wanna say that not to protect black folks, but doing our part in this struggle because we should have been out here with people all along. And I, I think that's just kind of a natural kind of progression that is going to have to happen as this system defends itself from the dismantling that is happening. Um, and I think that, that it only comes through this kind of natural uh, progression of struggle because we've seen, um, we've personally experienced what happens when we try to get, when we, are try, to, when we try to be proactive in trying to get uh, white progressives and leftists to understand that we can't just have a conversation about class and that fixes everything. We have to have a conversation about class and race. The, the two are inextricable and leaving the conversation about race out is um, ignoring our particular struggle, the struggle of Latinx people, the struggle of indigenous people and bringing up indigenous people, we've seen white leftists be more willing to talk about Native American struggle than black folks struggle. They've been more willing to talk about Latinx people struggle than black folks struggle. So there's that aspect of it too, that's really, really messy. But we've also seen white leftists be angry when black people say, well, fine, we need our own organizing spaces because we don't trust a whole lot of white people because we've seen what they do to us. We've seen the way they lie. We've seen the way they've come in and try to take over. So let us have this space for ourselves. And we've seen them use that against us too. So basically, I don't personally believe that there is anything that we can do to make white leftists do this work alongside us. 
I think the system does that. Our job is to continue organizing our people and struggling for the things that we need and everyone will eventually realize, oh my God, we've all got to have this multiracial class solidarity that black folks have been talking about for decades. How do we get that? Then I think we, we have to be receptive to folks realizing that we were right all along and then we can do that work. But I don't think we can make white leftists or white progressives want to do that work with us a second sooner than that. I think Jackie hit, hit the nail on the head uh, 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 on a whole lot of cases. There's not really much to add to it. <laughs> I, would, I would say that um, well, I was encouraged by um, the most recent protests down when Jackie and I went down to uh, Lafayette um, Park. And, um, uh, and we got caught up in the whole um, um, protest down there where we both got assaulted by the police. I saw um, white, white um, people falling in line behind black leadership. And I was encouraged by that. Um, and, and I think that this is where, um, I think this is where the change is coming from. The change isn't coming from Jackie and I's generation. It's gonna come from those young people that's down there now. They are the ones, the hip hop generation, the ones that grew up listening to black hip hop and the ones that have embraced black culture, um, not just superficially, but embraced black culture where it's almost like their own. That's the change that I see that's coming. And I see to the point that where these young people don't see black leadership as being something different or alien. And it's like, um, and, and so I was really encouraged by that. But um, other than that though, um, what everything Jackie said, I think was spot on. And this protest was one of the more recent Black Lives Matter protests, like that started taking off after the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay, because I know you had mentioned at one point, um, or both of you, I believe, that you were helping with kits, right, for activists. Um, at one point, you said that you weren't able to go because of the, uh, I don't know, coronavirus fears or something like that. But so you did end up going to a, a, a live protest in person? Yeah, you yeah. know, one thing about the Lupons, you know, yeah, I mean, like, um, <laughs> we just can't, you know, we just can't stay away from a good fight, you know yeah. what I mean? It's still in us. We just can't, you know, um, uh, we have some footage um, uh, and that when we went down there, and um, like I said, we both got assaulted by the police, and, wow. um, you know, but we, we, but, I mean, we were really, and I, I guess I can speak for Jackie on this, we were really inspired um, um, by seeing those young folks put themselves on the line like that. Now, we're, we, we know enough, being that we're middle-aged people, we understand our limitations now. So, you know, <laughs> so I mean, you know, so we, we, you know, we knew what we could do and what we couldn't do. But at the same time, I mean, this is where I think the strength of our movement comes from, to the fact that, yeah, the young people have the energy, they have um, uh, the physicality and all those things in order to do those type of things. But, um, you know, those in our, gen in, 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 my, in our generation and older, you know, we've graduated from foot soldiers to hopefully being the elders who can um, give guidance to, to the foot soldiers. So Yeah, the strategists. Right, right. So that's the role that Jackie and I are very comfortable in playing if we're allowed to play that, you know. So, and, and I have to say allowed because, um, it, you know, this is a people's movement. It depends on what the people want. Right, right. And I think that's, that's like the key. Um, I have seen um, organizations and uh, you know people 
who recognize the need to educate their people, just like you know we in our communities have to con have to continually um, engage in political uh, political ed education for our communities. You know, white leftists, uh, this new generation of leftists, of white leftists and white progressives are understanding that as well. So they recognize, they also recognize that it's not our job to, um, it's not black leftist job to make white people get it. It's their job. So that I think is the thing that I'm, I'm really encouraged to see. And I'm, I'm grateful that I'm able to be exposed to people who are doing that, like through um, my work with, uh, you know, on Vitamins Necessary and the Real News Network, because I get to kind of meet these people and talk to them and hear that, yeah, there are some people who are doing this background on the ground work going out into these white communities that are targets for the, you know, this, this right wing um, uh, political uh, uh, messaging and trying to circumvent that messaging and explaining, you know, these issues of race and class and how they affect them. And, and they are making some inroads. So uh, that, that's, that's the thing that's encouraging to me, um, especially when we recognize that the moment we are in now, this is not, we don't want people to think that anything that is happening in the streets right now is going to result in immediate change. Capitalism isn't going to be dismantled by like next month, right? This is <laughs> If only. <laughs> I mean, it would be great if that were true, but if it were that easy, we would have done it already because we've always been in this struggle. It's great that everyone else who is involved in this struggle is involved in this struggle right now. Um, but I, I think we need people to understand that this is a protracted struggle. This is a marathon, not a sprint. And this isn't even the end of the first leg. I, I don't even think we're even close to handing off the baton yet. So don't get tired. So I just, you had mentioned um, the real news and by any means necessary. And I wanted to talk to you all about that and about Blueprint Nation. But before I transitioned a bit, I wanted to just ask you, what is it like to be activists and to do sort of any sort of public engage in any sort of political action in dc because you all live in dc which is you know the belly of the beast the center of like american imperialism it's what we would formally call the metropole right if we're talking about old school colonialism so i'm wondering what are your what are your thoughts just sort of reflecting on living in the center of such massive world power, capitalism, racism, imperialism, all the isms, um, and still engaging as activists. Is it, does it feel more tense for you all or oppressive in some way? Um, and is there sort of this, I don't know, like spatial suffocation, if you will, of being surrounded by the CIA, the White House, and all of these spaces that technically symbolize what you all are fighting against? I don't know, you know, I'm gonna let I'm gonna let Abdus answer that first because see, he's not from here. So I'm interested to hear how he feels about it. Well, I'm not impressed at all. Um, you know, that's the thing. Um, I wasn't impressed before I moved down here and I'm not impressed um, uh, from living here almost 10 years. Um, that being said, I think that um, one of the limitations I, that I feel as an activist um, is not being able to engage the system 
in the way that um, I'm used to engaging the system when I lived in New Jersey, uh, which is my home state, because uh, DC is um, uh, uh, doesn't have representation. And so um, what happens is, is that, you know, uh, the people we're, we're basically disenfranchised from engaging in the political process just based upon um, the fact that um, DC is not a state. And so, um, uh, and, and seeing the politics being played even around that issue, the politics are being played around that issue where the fact that now that DC is becoming more and more white, now the issue of statehood is, is, is taken more seriously. Um, but when black people all that time, when it was known as Chocolate City, when black people all that time was trying, was talking about statehood and stuff, it wasn't uh, an issue that was given any um, uh, um, seriousness because, um, you know, because of all of, of what that would have represented and what that represented um, to the powers that be. Um, yeah, this is the most policed city um, that I have ever lived in. And I believe it's the most policed city. I told Jackie one time we were just driving around and I told Jackie, I said, my God, I said, how many police departments they have here? I said, um, you know, like every um, uh, institution in this uh, city has their own police force, um, you know, so that's pretty scary, you know, but I think that it also gives, uh, it also um, pre presents a challenge too, because you do have a large disenfranchised population within uh, Washington, D.C., uh, um, which is becoming more and more disenfranchised due to gentrification. And now that we're seeing the um, dire consequences of, of, of the corona pandemic, um, especially upon the um, communities of, of black and brown communities in this, in this city, um, and the fact that the economic situation in the city um, with respect to black and brown people is getting worse and worse. So that, uh, so that presents um, opportunities, unique opportunities. I think that that's not even experienced in other parts of the country. It, it provides unique opportunities for those of us who are on the ground here um, um, to um, fight even harder and to um, basically use um, the underground journalism, um, the overt journalism that, that, that exists in order to highlight um, the disparities which is happening as you say, within this capital um, of, uh, uh, you know, this city, which represents, you know, capitalism, imperialism, empire, which represents all of that, that projects to the world the, um, uh, the message of freedom and democracy, yet doesn't have it within its own, uh, uh, you know, sphere of influence, which it's, it's really sphere of influence. So, um, so it, prevent, it presents us, and, and it also puts us in the crosshairs, I believe, because um, where you do have all of the police and surveillance apparatuses here. I already told Jackie, I said, I'd love to see what's in our dossier. <laughs> like, I, you know, like I would, you know, I would love to see it because I know we have one, you know what I mean? I know we have one. So I said, I would love to see that. Um, but, you know, this is, this is what we believe getting back to how we started this program, getting back to our faith tradition. Um, Jackie and I, um, being people of faith, um, this, this, this gives us the, um, the strength and courage um, to face, um, uh, you know, and I understand that a lot of people might not understand where we're coming from, but it also gives us the strength to understand that, um, that we believe that we're put here um, from a higher authority and that that higher authority is the one that really calls all the shots. So whatever happens, 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 but we can't, um, you know, we have to honor um, those people that went before us who went through the same thing. 
um, and, um, you know, and, and who have lost their lives doing this and, um, and whose families have been severely impacted by doing this type of work, but they weren't deterred. And they understood that as we used to, the old uh, program that Jackie and I grew up on called Eyes on the Prize, they knew that they had to keep their eyes on the prize. And so that's what we're trying to do. We understand that, yeah, we can all just um, live for ourselves, but, um, but we won't have a better world if everybody done that. So this, that's, uh, that's, that's where, that's at least how I see it. Yeah, that's, I mean, it, it's, it is weird. I mean, how I grew up in this city since I was six years old. Um, and, I, and I don't know that it feels any more oppressive here than growing up like in my hometown of Jarrett, Virginia, where um, I was aware of, you know, white racism in a small southern town, <laughs> you know, since I was a little kid and understanding that there were certain things I could and could not do in certain places I could and could not go um, because, you know, the, the racist white people made it that way and we weren't safe um, if we defied that. Um, but I think I did, did not uh, understand the, the issue that, that Abdus brought up, the, 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 the occupation-like presence of not just Metro Police over here in the area of the city where we live, but also just the endless number of police uh, uh, departments, the, I mean, the housing police, the Metro police, the, uh, the, the CIA police, the, uh, you know, Supreme Court police, there's the park police, there's, you know, and, and they all have jurisdiction, all of these alphabet soup um, police agencies all have the authority to snatch you up and take you away somewhere. Um, and, and they all cooperate with each other. And, and I, I had no idea that that existed in this city until I became like really seriously politically active. And, and that does, um, I think, impact the level of awareness that we have because we're so active um, in, uh, you know, politically. Uh, so, so we're, you know, more aware of um, our, our, you know, our surroundings and stuff when we move around. But I mean, that, that's like this, this heavy thing. Like we, we have a big, big, I, I mean, big red, black, and green flag out front and a Black Lives Matter flag. And we also live on a block where there are uh, cops who live it. So, you know, we get the stairs and, and it's something I never thought about before, but that's, that's like, that, that's like it. That's, that's like the encapsulation of our life in this city, in this system. And as activists, it's like, it's going to be uncomfortable sometimes because the, the, the entire system and the agents of the system are all around us, but we have to do what we do and be who we are. And that's never going to change. Right. And you all seem to do that proudly. I mean, you're hyper visible. Um, you're active on social media. You have your own show. Um, Jacqueline, as I said, you're on the real news and by any means necessary. I'm, I'm, what I'm interested in is sort of how you all are navigating um, the journalist space and especially alternative journalism, because I feel like, you know, oftentimes I, I see something where people will say like, where are all the black lefties and, and all, 
media. And I'm like, right here, like there are a lot of us, you know, and I, you all are some of the first ones who come to mind. Um, and so I'm curious about your experiences. Um, how did you come about founding the Luke Nation show on YouTube? Um, and then Jackie specifically, how did you end up working with Real News and by any means necessary? And on top of that, you know, considering, as I said, that you all are so hyper visible as activists and as journalists, how then have you kind of what are the precautions I guess that you would tell others to take if they're interested in something like that and then also what have been your experiences in the crosshairs especially recently although certainly I mean if you started doing activism and whatnot in the 80s and 90s you have to deal with the cold war leftover stuff um, but we see now a reemergence of this sort of uh, rhetoric with Russiagate and um, a sort of foreclosure of of leftist activism, but specifically black leftist activism and visibility in the press. So I'm curious to know about your experiences, how you got into this. Um, and yeah, if you could just sort of talk about the, the history for you all. And, and as I said, how you're navigating this space with all of these different adversaries coming at people like you. Oh, you better tell a story about how you started this abyss. <laughs> Well, you know, when Jackie and I first met, um, we under we we stuck when we you know through the whole dating thing, and we started to, um, you know, we started to really connect a lot of the things that we had in common. And outside of powerlifting, yes, we both were powerlifters, so it's like, yes. um, yeah. <laughs> so, um, so we had that in common, and um, but we used to, you know, I lived in New Jersey at the time; she was down here, so you know, of course, we did the whole thing of um, talking on the phone every night. And I noticed that every time, you know, we would always talk politics. And for me, as a man, it was really difficult because I ran, I, 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 it, it, I never ran into a woman that I, that I dated or was interested in who loved to talk about politics, you know. And, um, and I was like, wow, you know, this is really a plus here. So when we did finally get married and, um, and I relocated down here, um, that continued. I mean, we would we would get into these long debates about politics and everything, not and not agreeing on everything. Not, we didn't agree on everything, but the fact that it was stimulating, uh, you know. And so one day, I just told her, I said, you know what? I, and and it was because I loved the, how articulate she she is. So I was like, wow, because I grew up listening to talk radio. I was a nerd in Camden, New Jersey, that used to love to listen to talk radio. You know, as a teenager. So, um, so the acoustics, um, I was very fine, um, you know, fine tuned with, you know, so when I would listen to her talk, I used to always say in my mind, wow, she would make a really good um, talk show host. And so one day I just brought that up to her and I was like, wow, you know, um, and, and it wasn't for me to even be included. It was just for her. And so I said, wow, you know, I said, um, you know, you would really be good at this. And oh, no, no, I wouldn't be. Nah, nah, nah. You know, you know, and I had to basically just say, well, hey, look, let's start this. Uh, and it was during the time of the Freddie Gray thing. And we had started to really become involved in, in um, certain um, grassroots organizations. So um, so I said, well, let's start this blog talk, because a lot of people were starting to get on blog talk radio at the time. And I said, well, let us, um, you know, just, just, you know, just see where, where it goes. So we started a, you know, blog talk thing. We was doing um, a show, like me, I think it was once every, like every once a week. And at the same time, um, you know, we were still being involved in this grassroots organization. When the Freddie Gray thing kicked off, this is where I seen how Mrs. Lukeman really had what it took, in my view, to really do this thing. Um, we went to Baltimore. Baltimore was still on fire. I think um, they didn't even, I think they were, the cops had were, were just being um, indicted and 
I mean, the city was still on fire. And we went up there with this organization. And um, Jackie, I, I, I just sat back and I just watched how um, she was interviewing these kids. And, and not only the way she was interviewing them, but um, there, was no, there was no fear. Uh, and we were surrounded by, by cops. We were surrounded. I mean, like I said, it was on fire. And there was no fear. There was no, there, there was really this sincere um, uh, uh, attitude on her part of getting involved. I mean, she was like a war correspondent. And so, um, and I noticed that how the people took to her. These kids came up and they were in a line, Wendy, let me tell you, they were in a line to talk to her. I, we still have some old audio clips of, um, of those times. And I even, every now and then, Wendy, I have to tell you, I listen to those audio clips and I think it's still some of the best work we ever done. Um, we recently started putting those clips back up on our Patreon page. And um, so um, that, was, that was our baptism. We, we were baptized um, during the Freddie Gray um, uh, situation. And um, it just started to grow from there. And like every other platform, you know, we didn't know what we had. You know, there was nobody listening to us, not even our own family members. Okay. Nobody okay. was paying attention to <laughs> us. But, you know, and, and a couple of times we wanted, you know, we wanted to give up. But, um, but it was just something in me because I am a competitor and it was just something in me that just said, no, we're, we're, we're going to continue to do this. We're going to continue to do it. Um, uh, you know, we left uh, blog talk and we started, you know, utilizing other uh, social media platforms, but, um, and then the audience started to build, you know, and one of the things that when we started Look My Nation, our main priority was that we felt that there was a void, um, when it came to the way that information was disseminated to our folks. And when I mean our folk, I'm talking about the poor black folks in the projects where, where we live at. And so we wanted to fill that void as best as we could, as far as not only disseminating the information um, internationally and locally um, to our, our people, but we also wanted to be the conduit um, to, to, um, to um, tell what the stories of our folk who we live around, the folk on, in the projects, the folks up there that's on the street corners and, and every, every, everywhere, all of the spaces that we find our people, we wanted to be that vehicle to let those in power know how, how we feel. And I say we, cause we're not separated from them, how we feel. And, and that's what we existed. We always tried to, um, and I told Jackie, I said, um, this, is, this is what we exist for. We've always tried to remain uh, true to that mission. We didn't chase all the, you know, we've seen that a lot of our contemporaries during that time were chasing all the hot stuff, um, people that we respected and we still respect who had bigger platforms than ours, more followers and all this other kind of stuff. They were just tr chasing the latest thing, you know, and was basing their program around the latest uh, 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 subject at the time. But Jackie and I, maintain we just stayed true to what our mission was and no we didn't have the biggest following we didn't have the largest platform uh when we would go on when we would go live you know we didn't have the largest audience but we just kept to what we knew and what we got into this we didn't we're not in it to to chase fame we're not in it we definitely ain't in it for the money <laughs> um and um you know and, and we're not in it for any anything uh, anything that would elevate our own personal selves. We were in it because we, we have a love for black people and we have a love specifically for poor black people um, who are the least loved in the world, in my opinion. And so um, 
this is why this is why um, what we do and how we navigate that. I say quickly is that Jackie and I have learned over the course of time of doing this that we had to compartmentalize our life, our daily lives. So we get up every morning doing our devotions, um, giving honor to God and our Creator um, to to get us started on the day. We do that every morning. Um, and we also understand that there's times when we have to have downtime. There's times when, no, we don't answer the phone. There's times where we don't answer uh, um, the instant messages on Facebook. There's times when we just, like we did yesterday, order Chinese food and watch a movie because we have to decompress from this stuff. And um, so, and, and there's times now where, so not so much me, um, but Jackie being in the, in the spaces that she's in, there's times when Jackie has to say no to things. No, I, I can't do this. No, I can't do this interview. No, I can't do that. And um, so we're learning that part of doing this fight. And um, when you said about advice, well, one of uh, my main advice to those um, who, who's in this line of work is that you have to not forget about yourself because if we're not well, if we're not taking care of ourselves, then we're no good to anybody else. So that, 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 takes um i mean jackie and i meditate i mean we have spaces where we meditate so we we learn to incorporate things in our lives to um to help us um emotionally physically um uh uh all the other you know just our total um a being in order to um and let's say this too not giving too much away but um, but we're also um, you know, we also tie our camel too, which is an old Semitic um, uh, 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 proverb that says, "Trust in God, but tie your camel," which means that um, we also um, we're, we're a Second Amendment couple. Um, we do believe that um, sometimes you have to speak the language of the street, literally. <laughs> um, you know, um, you know, we love we we're peace and we're peace and love when peace and love comes to us, but. Um, but, you know, so we, we try to embody every phase of this, of our revolutionary lifestyle, um, you know, and, and that's, the, so again, one of our, my advice is that you have to be able to navigate these spaces. You have to pick and choose your battles. And that's what we've been learned. That's what we have learned to, to do during the course of this journey. Yeah. I mean, and that has been like, when, when, when he, gave me you know the idea to do this it was just like first of all I don't I, I'm not you know good at I'm not good at this and I had to come out of you know this really deep indoctrination of the Christian church I was I was you know I had I had some of those same weird ide you know ideologies about you know respectability politics and all this kind of foolishness so I had to I had to and, and I was already challenging those ideas but it's very hard to challenge those ideas when you're by yourself in the middle of it, right? And he, I always say this, and it's very true, he gave me, he gave me the courage that I needed to do that more. Um, so in, in a lot of ways, this was, you know, me marrying him, us getting married was like, um, we wouldn't be here if we had never gotten married, if we hadn't met and hadn't gotten married. And if I hadn't just kind of trusted that whatever it was that he wanted us to do with this sh show thing, that's what I called it at first, the show thing, um, that, I mean, it would be okay, I guess. <laughs> and 
I didn't know what I was doing. I had no experience in it. I was terrified. Um, but I like talking to people. I like finding out about what people are going through. I like, I like listening to and telling people's stories. I've always liked doing that. So that came easy to me. And the, the parts of this that were really, really difficult and, and they're still sometimes very difficult for me is um, dealing with the politics of the movement, like dealing with people who are, um, you know, people that you put your trust in, who, who you align yourself with, who you find out aren't really in it for um, anything other than advancing their own personal uh, 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 benefit. Um, you know, d d handling the disappointment of that kind of thing, uh, you know, being, um, being, uh, 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 you know, having people uh, turn their backs on you or uh, do sneaky things, <laughs> you know, you have to deal with that and realize that not everybody who is in this, who has a platform, who has a whole bunch of followers are really about that life. Uh, there are too many people in this especially the online movement who are in it for their personal benefit. And that's okay. It's just that that's really hard to navigate for me um, because then you have to find a way to distance yourself from these people. You have to, there's this whole um, almost cleansing process that, that I feel like I have to do to protect our integrity because the one thing that we said that we would always do regardless of what this turned into was that we would never ever be or project anything other than who we were and what we believe in as individuals as people regardless of what happens whether we become you know, whether we get big platforms or whether we remain, you know, these, you know, two obscure black folk that nobody knows over here, you know, in, in DC, um, regardless of what happens, the Lukemans will always be who we are. We will always talk about what's important to us. We'll always tell the truth as we see it. And we'll never let anybody tell us what they want us to say about the condition of our people. And we've stuck to that and sticking to that has ended up landing me in spaces where I can represent Luke Mon Nation on the Real News Network. I can represent Luke Mon Nation on Sputnik Radio. And I don't have to change what I believe. Nobody tells me what to do, of course, you know, because we're on Sputnik. I always get, you know, every once in a while, oh my God, you're paid by the Russians. Um, you know, so, you know, you're a Russian, you're a Russian agent. Well, that ain't the first time we've heard that, you know, from folks, <laughs> <laughs> you know, just trying to dismiss our activism. And, and certainly that's not the first time that, that white people have used that to silence black people who have been in this struggle before us. That's, that's a common trope um, that's been used. I mean, W.E.B. Du Bois, Paul Robeson. Um, Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, that all the Marcus Garvey, that everybody 
that they were all accused of being Russian agents. We, we've been struggling against racism in this country because we're communists, according to some people, not because you know, we're oppressed and we're sick of it. So th these are things that we still have to, have to face. And, and for me, because I am, I guess I'm, I'm really, I don't like confrontation with people. I, I, I had to learn how to handle those kinds of interactions. Abdus is great at it because he's from New Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> no shade to New Jersey, of course. But <laughs> You know, I'm not so much because I was a nice church girl from, you know, Jerry, Virginia, but you, you, learn, you, you develop your chops in this business. And, and I think we have been, um, we've been really fortunate to have been, um, for us being true to ourselves, to have landed us in the position that we're in now. I mean, this isn't, like I said, you know, like I've just said, we don't have the biggest platforms uh, of, of other people and we're not as well known as other folks, but we don't really care because this is not about, for us, any of those things. This is about the struggle. This is about liberation for our people. We see this as us playing our part to do that. And, and, and you know, however long we have this uh, spot, this role to play, we're going to do the work. Yeah, and I just wanted to just add too, um, Wendy, and, and that's why we appreciate, you know, platforms like yours. Um, uh, because, um, you know, we, we don't have the biggest platform and we understand that, but we do appreciate when, um, people such as yourself, you know, uh, because we're, we're still in this, we don't believe we're here type stage. We're still, we're still into that. And, um, uh, and so we're very appreciative, um, when folks such as yourself, um, allow us to, um, expand our voice, uh, our voice a little bit, you know, um, so just wanted to just let you know that. Oh, I mean, yeah. the feeling is mutual, obviously. Like, I really respect the work that you all do. Um, and I think that it's something that's necessary, um, especially because, you know, as I said, sometimes you turn on YouTube or, you know, you kind of look at Twitter or Facebook or whatever, and it just feels like there's a void. And so I appreciate that you all kind of, you all actively fill that void of engaging in so many different topics, um, while at the same time being well-centered on the left um, in a way that's very salient to be honest and it's very clear i think there's sometimes you know one of the issues that i've run into with other podcasters and listening to other podcasts i should say is that i'll be on board i'm like yeah yeah that's good that's really interesting and then things will just go in a really awful direction like they become <laughs> racist or yep. sexist or whatever mm -hmm. and you're like what the hell like why can't people just stay centered on and focused to be honest um on liberation for everyone and not just you know, one group of, one small group of people on the left as opposed to everyone. Um, one aspect of that, though, that I thought was interesting that you all brought up on a show a few, I want to say a few days ago or maybe a week ago, um, you all often talk about Africa. Um, and I don't mean Africa as a country, but I'm saying Africa as a continent and it's all in recognizing all of its diversity and diverse politics. You all are very engaged in that as a subject. Um, and it's something that, again, is, is often absent on the left. It's almost as if some leftists in the United States and even Europe and elsewhere forget that Africa exists um, and has its own, own specific, you know, country specific issues. Um, but I'm wondering, what are your thoughts on repatriation because it's as I said it's something that you all mentioned I believe on the last episode or a few episodes ago you talked about 
perhaps um, the prospect of going back to Africa or the need or interest in going back to Africa for African-Americans. Um, and I wanted to know a little bit more about that, if you could expound upon that uh, sentiment, uh, especially because you all mentioned throughout our discussion now, the kind of need to be self-sufficient at times, especially when the movements themselves sort of fall apart. You always have to have your own community and your own base and your own sort of home, if you will, political home to go to. And I'm wondering, what are your thoughts on Africa and specific countries, if applicable here, uh, within Africa that you feel like could somehow represent some aspect of that, uh, you know, repatriation, even if just political. So I'm not saying that you all are gonna like go move to Ghana or something. Um, but, in, <laughs> but maybe, I mean, yeah, like maybe one day. Uh, but in what ways, um, sort of what position for you all does, does Africa, the continent, and then if applicable, you know, specific countries, if you wanna talk about that, what does that represent for you all? And what's its significance for, for black leftists in particular, but perhaps the left as a whole? One of the things that Jackie and I uh, try to stress to people when, we, um, when we're able to do it is that we're Pan-Africanists um, and Pan-Africanists in the traditional sense. Now that has been demonized lately, especially by groups um, like the ADOS movement and, and others. But um, I, am, I, I feel like um, uh, being um, uh, a student or I should say being a, a uh, one who has studied um, Garveyism, which I, I consider myself a Garveyite, um, believe that uh, one, you know, the, the, that this repatriation, and, and with, uh, is a, is a very good thing. Uh, I think the fact that the continent is starting to align itself with um, um, with the diaspora, uh, which it hasn't always done because of its own problems uh, being under the yoke of colonialism, and the fact that a lot of these African nations. Um, are only like, um, independence was only like 50 years ago, you know? So you're talking about very young nations with respect to um, independence and, and, you know, so, but in that time, you're starting to see um, African, uh, the African nations, um, for the most part, starting to recognize the global struggle of um, the diaspora, starting to understand the, the, the role that the continent is, is playing uh, and has always played uh, and, and, and will continue to play in this world. Um, and Jackie and I, uh, the show that you were talking about, Wendy, uh, Jackie and I were trying to stress about the role of Africa, um, uh, its role in a post-COVID uh, world. And, um, and, and uh, we already see the dynamics being played out there. But Africa has always been, um, as uh, John Henry Clark once said, Dr. John Henry Clark once said, has always been a place where everybody wants, wants something, but nobody wants to pay for it. And I think that the continent has been reaching out to the diaspora, especially um, uh, to those of us in America, uh, for the longest time in order for us to um, uh, use our talents and skills to help develop the continent. And we're starting to see those play out. And I think that's one of the reasons why you see this fear because let's look at it. White supremacy has always, and they've been successful at it, but they have always wanted to, to disconnect us from our African family. That was, I mean, that was one of the major victories in their um, uh, dominance over us, is to disconnect us from our African family, to call us Negro, um, to call us everything but what we are, African. And, um, and so that, but that was by design. That was by design. It was, it was uh, to disconnect us 
from not only um, um, our brothers and sisters on the continent, but from the resources which is under their feet, you know. So, um, so yeah, I think that that it's 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 um, very encouraging that African nations are starting to align with the diaspora politically and understand the struggles that that we're having, which is their struggles too. It would only strengthen us as a global African community when Africa is strong. I believe, um, Jackie, if you can help me, but I believe it was Kwame Torre, who, um, the late Kwame Torre, who said that um, when Africa is strong, you will see um, Africans everywhere become stronger because um, what, what, what would defend our rights and what would defend our protections is having strong nation states. As we've seen with white people in this country, um, the history of white people who have been abused in this country, assaulted and murdered, that when they were connected to nation states, then um, those nation states were able to intervene on their behalf. We've seen that recently with the Australian woman that, that was murdered by a cop up in uh, Minneapolis a couple of years ago. Um, so, um, so we understand that when Africa gets stronger, um, then that would um, strengthen all of our positions as African people. And we're starting to even see the seeds of that starting to happen right now. So I think that it is our home, and I think that um, it's our birthright. And, um, and of course, we understand that everybody's not going to move to Africa, but it's good to know that it's there. It's good to know that um, African nations are giving us citizenship. Um, it's good to know that, that we have the opportunity to return home if we would like, um, even if we don't do it physically, but even spiritually, even uh, mentally, to return home um, as the descendants of kidnapped people and go back home to um, to to the land where um, they gave birth to us. So, um, yeah, I'm very encouraged. I mean, Jackie and I, we talk about it all the time about, you know, we would like to retire there. I personally, um, when the time comes for me, um, I would like to be buried in Africa, you know, somewhere, somehow, some way to return home and end this 400, 500 year nightmare for at least my family and uh, to return back home. So, um, this is uh, something, uh, um, I, hope, I hope I answered your question, but it has so many different um, uh, aspects to it. It has so many di um, different meanings to this that it's kind of hard to cover it all, you know, in, in the segment. But yeah, we're, we're definitely, um, our Pan-Africanist uh, ideology is, um, uh, which is also our political ideology, um, is the reason why we talk about Africa so much. Yeah, I mean, just, the the fact that as socialists we first got our um, our taste of of socialism as a an alternative and and not just an alternative really but the the goal of a society for African people throughout the diaspora because of African leaders who uh, fought for independence for their countries from European colonization and were trying to move their countries towards socialism. We're talking about, you know, people like Julius Nyerere and uh, uh, Modibo Keita and Kwame Nkrumah of Ghana and Siko Toure and, and you know, uh, uh, Patrice Lumumba. And, and interestingly, all of these African leaders, there were like seven of them who all um, achieved independence of their various African nations at around the same time, they were involved in a, uh, a Pan-African Union 
to advance socialism and uh, to create a Pan-African Union independent of colonization and U.S. and Western powers had a hand in assassinating every single one of them. So we are socialists, not because we read Karl Marx first, and that's, you know, not, not, and that's not any, you know, shade thrown toward Karl Marx, but we're socialists because we knew the history of the struggle against colonialism on the continent of Africa. So, I mean, for us, politically, ideologically, Africa is that important to us. And it's, you know, through our in-person activism that within we became um, uh, uh, familiarized with, you know, the works of Marx and Lenin, because, you know, these folks got their idea of socialism from someone and it was Marx and Lenin. And, and so we kind of got it on the back end, but you know, Pan-African, Pan-Africanism was the gateway for, uh, to that ideology for us. Um, and we also realized that as the geopolitical uh, balance of power changes in the world, because that is absolutely happening right now, it was happening anyway before coronavirus, but coronavirus is, we think, um, speeding up that transition. The United States is no longer the, uh, at the pinnacle of global geopolitical power in the world anymore. And it's of course fighting tooth and nail to maintain that position. But um, as Abdus always says, nature abhors a vacuum. So when the United States recedes from that pinnacle of geopolitical power, there's gonna be a vacuum. What's gonna fill that vacuum? And this is what other countries around the world are um, working in alignment, to, in alignment to do. And what they're doing, countries like Russia, countries like China, um, and other non-aligned countries, non-aligned meaning countries that are not aligned with the Western imperialist powers of the United States and Europe, they are making deals to uh, work together, but they're also making deals with Africa, uh, with countries in Africa. Um, now, this, these deals that they are making with uh, uh, countries on the continent are not always mutually beneficial. Let's not, we're not uh, naive in thinking that um, there is no level of exploitation that is ever going to happen in these new power dynamics, the difference with these relationships uh, as opposed to uh, the colonialism and the neo-colonialism uh, that, uh, um, that shaped really modern Africa is that these other countries are willing to make some kind of investments in the continent. They're building infrastructure. They are uh, uh, making monetary investments. That stuff comes with strings. And there's always political uh, chicanery that we have to be very, very aware of. But Africa is emerging as the, uh, the centerpiece to whatever the global, uh, um, the new global power dynamic will be after the United States uh, leaves a void in being at the top of the geopolitical world order. 
Every other country in the world knows that. So does the United States. Um, and we as African people understand this and we feel like it is incumbent upon us to make discussions about Africa, the importance of Africa, not just in the history of our people and the fact that Africa is where we came from. Um, we don't have last names like Malone and Jefferson. Those are my family last names and uh, Johnson, that was Abdus's family last name before he changed his name. There's nobody in Africa named after those people. There are no Johnsons and Malones and you know butts and cribs in Africa. Our last names were given to us by the people who owned our ancestors. And our ancestors came here from the continent. There is no divorcing our existing existence anywhere on this planet from the origin of all of us, and that is Africa. I don't care how anybody feels about that, that's just true. Um, so we believe that Africa is important, not just in relation to the history of us as a people, wherever we are in the world, but also Africa is important to our future, not just you know politically, but also as our future home, even as we fight for equality and justice here, because we did build this and we built wherever it was, we were enslaved in this world, we, we should be fighting for justice wherever we are in the world, but Africa is our home. So the, the discussion about Africa in left politics, you're right, is non-existent and we hate it and we are we are doing what we can to change that um, because Africa is going to be much more important to whatever this world is gonna look like than a whole lot of people uh, realize. And I think it's, it's gonna be more important than a whole lot of people are, are comfortable with. Yeah, definitely. And I, I appreciate that you all, I think at least from my understanding of some of the things that you all have said, not only during this interview, but during your shows, is that you're conscious of the degree to which there are sometimes these um, uneven aspects of repatriation as well, right? If you look at situations like what happened in Liberia over time, um, if you look at even sometimes some of the newer expat movements where you have Americans or Europeans of African descent, moving to parts of Africa, but then sometimes gauging, engaging in practices that are also exploitative, right? That just sort of rehash um, older forms of power, but with newer faces. Uh, but I, I recognize through a lot of your dialogues on the show and things like that, that you all are very conscious of, of this issue. Um, and I think have the right type of mentality and politics, you know, going into seeing this sort of move, if you ever were to take it, to be something that would be collaborative with the people on the ground and local populations, as opposed to something just for you to like, retire and call it a day and like <laughs> live like you're living in the U.S. maybe better um, in Africa as sort of a vacation spot, uh, which unfortunately some people do. Um, but I recognize that you all are not about that life and you all actually have the, pol the politics of solidarity in mind as well. Um, which I, I think, you know, as you had mentioned, uh, just this idea of uh, Africans, African nations reconnecting with the diaspora and trying to form uh, connections politically as well. That's super important. Um, and I know that you all recognize that. So with that said, 
It was so great to speak to you all. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time on a Saturday in the summer when you could be out doing stuff. Even I know you'd have to wear masks and gloves and all that, um, but you could be outside doing something a lot more fun than talking to me. So I appreciate the time that you took to talk to me. Um, and I just wanted to ask if you all could share the best ways for people to get in touch with you or to check out your content. You can find us on Facebook by searching under Lukeman Nation, L-U-Q-M-A-N-N-A-T-I-O-N, where uh, our page is called Coffee Current Events and Politics in Lukeman Nation, but usually it comes up if you search just under Lukeman Nation. Uh, you can also, excuse me, find us on Patreon where we have um, uh, special, Patreon, uh, special patron content uh, as well as regular content, the monologues that I do on By Any Means Necessary. I share them there. We share a whole bunch of other stuff. Um, we're on Patreon at uh, patreon.com slash Nation, L-U-Q-M-A-N-N-A-T-I-O-N. We are also on YouTube. You can find us there by searching Lukeman Nation. <laughs> um, and uh, every day, and we still still pinch ourselves <laughs> that every day we get to broadcast on uh, by any means necessary on Sputnik radio. Um, you can hear those podcasts on uh, Spreaker, iHeartRadio, iTunes, uh, and uh, I'm missing one. Uh, I cannot remember all of them. <laughs> it's like anywhere uh, you can find podcasts, I think. Anywhere right? you can find a podcast, you yeah. can find by any means necessary on Radio Sputnik. You can also go to the Facebook page for Sputnik and uh, check us out live. Um, and uh, also I do segments for the Real News Network. Um, I've got a segment coming out in the next couple of days, which I think is really important. It talks about the history of the secret police and why what's going on in Portland isn't new. Um, so you can check out our content on the Real News Network's uh, a YouTube page and Facebook page. So yeah, did I miss anything, Aptis? Uh, no, I think that's it. And you all are on Twitter too, right? Are you, you're not oh, as active yeah. on Twitter, right? You're yes, we are on Twitter, but I, I hate Twitter. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> We're on Twitter and because Twitter is like, Twitter like takes up so much of your, you go in, it's like going in, it's like going to Costco. You mean to go in <laughs> for like a pack of chicken. You swear you're just going to get a pack of chicken. Four hours and $787 later. <laughs> so yes, we are on Twitter though. Uh, Lukeman Nation uh, 1. Lukeman Nation 1 on Twitter. Is there a Lukeman Nation without the one somehow? I don't think so. Okay. If there is, I better I better look. Right. Yes, we, so make sure we, you include the one. But oh. we did say that um we were going to um be be more active with our Twitter account. So I mean, so yeah. So look for more tweets from us. Yeah, I, I always liken Twitter to sort of a mosh pit. Right. So yeah, <laughs> sometimes you yeah. want to go in just to dance and you end up fighting your way out of it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and I'm too old for the box pit anymore. So. <laughs> well, listen, it was great talking to you both. Thank you so much for joining the Left Pocket Project, obviously. Um, well, thank and, you for having us. And thank you for listening to the Left Pocket Project podcast. Of course, as a reminder, you can always find us by typing the word left POC, and that's L E F T POC on Google. That will take you to wherever we are on Facebook, SoundCloud.
Twitter, blah, 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 blah. Um, but most important of all, I want you to check out our Patreon page. And that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash left P-O-C, L-E-F-T-P-O-C, of course. There you can find all of our episodes for free. Um, in addition to, of course, wherever you find all of your podcasts, because we're there as well. Um, but you can find all of our podcast episodes there for free. We don't believe in having a paywall. There's also information about the origins of the podcast, books and readings you can have for free. Um, you can check out our Reading Revolution series. And of course, we always post the books there for free as well. Um, and I'd also say check it out if you're interested in donating a dollar or more per month. You help keep our podcast and project afloat. Uh, we don't take any corporate donations or outside money. All of our money comes from our listeners and we put all of our money back into the podcast paying our guests. Um, of course, we always give our guests a small remuneration and donate to the organization of their choice. And of course, I pay assistants and Richard and we pay for web storage and things like that. So definitely please donate if you can um, to keep us afloat and to help us keep everything free as always. So with that said, thank you all so much again for listening. Please be safe out there. Uh, do whatever you need to do to protect yourself, your family, and your friends. We need more of you. Trust me on this. We need more, not less. So please take care of yourselves and uh, have a good one.